and welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Henrik Mikatarian, Tony Sane, Roberto Martinez, Julie Foudy, and Landon Donovan. I think you'll enjoy today's interview guest. It's ESPN's Gabriel Marcotti. It would be absolutely huge for this podcast's growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little bit of time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. Now, here's my interview with Gabriel Marcotti. Our guest now is one of my dear friends. Gabriel Marcotti is a senior writer for ESPN and a correspondent for Corriere della Sport. He has written four books, and he worked with Gianluca Vialli on his new book, Goals, Inspirational Stories to Help Tackle Life's Challenges. Gab also holds the record for the person who traveled the farthest to attend my wedding coming from London to Seattle. Welcome to the show, my friend. Great to be with you, man. That, that, was, uh, that was some years ago, and, uh, <laughs> and, and thanks for mentioning uh, Luca's book, which I should point out, I... I helped him out. I helped curate it uh, a little bit, but it's uh, it's not a soccer book. It's shouldn't be in the sports section. It's a self help book essentially. As you may know, Luca's been, as he puts it, he's on a journey with a particularly aggressive and, and, and nasty form of cancer. He's he's better now. Uh, he's in remission, but he decided to write this book, which is essentially ninety short stories plus his own story about. You know, figures from the world of, of, of sports, uh, some very famous, some less famous, who, who who are somehow inspirational, were inspirational to him. Everyone is paired with a mantra, and these are things that, that got him through a difficult period. And the idea behind it is it's the kind of book that, you know, if you need to pick me up, you might pick it up and read a story or two, and then you put it down again. So so I'm, I, I was, you know, I was on, I've known the guy a long time. I was honored that that he asked me to help out, help select some of the stories, um, and and help curate it. I mean, it's not the first time you've worked with Viali. How did that relationship develop over the years? You guys did a, a book together many years ago. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously the the book that we did together was uh, was the Italian Job that was way back in in, in two thousand five, I guess, and that was still to this day, I think, is probably the most fulfilling thing uh, I've ever done professionally. Um, essentially, he and I crisscrossed Italy and England for, for a year, talking to the managers and, and, and players about the game. And the great thing when you're writing something with Gianluca Vialli, who you know is a very popular guy, is doors open for you. And you get levels of access that you wouldn't have otherwise. So we got to spend a lot of time with everybody from Sir Alex Ferguson to Jose Mourinho to Fabio Capello to Marcello Lippi to Arsene Wenger. Um, and they were all extremely, extremely generous uh, with their with their time. I mean, remember the, the Sir Alex one was funny because he was in London. Um, he was obviously managing Manchester United at the time. And they played Fulham the night before and he'd said, all right, come meet me in my hotel at 7 a.m. and then I got to get back to Manchester. And of course they play Fulham and I can't remember if they lost or they drew, but I just remember, you know, being in the cab with, with Luca on the way over and both of us being like, oh my God, he's going to be so grumpy that, you know, they dropped points last night. Uh, and instead we get there and we ended up having breakfast with him. He changed his travel arrangements. We ended up having lunch with him and he eventually left uh, at like five o'clock in the afternoon, and you know you can imagine like ten hours in Sir Alex's company with with just basically just talking nonstop. Conversation goes to some very weird places, but most of all, it's, it's just a it's just an education. And um, yeah, again, I single him out, but uh, really, so many people were so generous with their time with us, and I think I think they really enjoyed. It's not because I was there; it's because of Luca. So. I mentioned this earlier, you and I go back to the 1990s, um, you know, back in those days, you were working for a number of outlets. You had a connection to Sports Illustrated where I started out. I think we maybe spent a fair amount of time with each other at the 98 World Cup in France, which was my first World Cup uh, to cover. Um, and before I go any farther, I, I just want to ask, how are you and your family doing right now? We're good. We, 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 we coped with it um, fairly well uh, in the sense that um, kids school went on lockdown sort of before the rest of the population because uh, there was a, a parent there who, uh, who tested 
who tested positive and because it's kind of a well-known figure he was in the news so school was very proactive about it um the rest of the country shut down a little later um and you know in some ways it was prepared because my mom lives in italy all my relatives are in italy and you know italy was sort of um a month ahead and i kind of i kind of feared where where it might go and of course now um you know there's more i think britain has the second well if you exclude Andorra and San Marino, which are like statistical aberrations, um, you know, Britain has the second highest number of deaths per million uh, in Europe after Belgium. Um, and, you know, even now as restrictions are easing, um, you know, the, yesterday they had 240 odd deaths. And it's it's been kind of, it's been kind of sobering in the sense that, it just kind of desensitized us, you know, these numbers every single day, they, we, we kind of, you know, you're kind of like, oh, look, just 52 deaths and 1500 infections yesterday. Whoa, what if that was a good day? You know, it's, I, I know it's, it's, it's a very trite thing to say, but you know, behind every one of those deaths is, is, is a person and, and a family and, and loved ones. And I know obviously because of the work, um, you know, your, your wife, Dr. Gounder, does. Obviously, you don't need me to tell you, but I think everybody listening is probably worth reminding ourselves wherever you stand. This is a, uh, it's, you know, it, it is the defining, I think, tragedy of of our generation and probably anybody, you know, unless they lived, you know, since, since World War II. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you on that. Uh, I'm glad you guys are healthy. Um, so... In this podcast, I, I want to get later on here into a little bit more about your personal story, because I think a lot of our listeners probably listen to your podcast, see you on TV, on ESPN, uh, know a lot about what you think about what's going on in the soccer world uh, right now, but may not know as much about sort of your personal story. Um, I do want to ask you one question, though, about something you're working on, because I think it's kind of cool. And ESPN's doing this thing called Battle of the Leagues. And I've been following this, and it's especially been fun because we don't have a lot of soccer to watch right now. Um, could you fill your, our listeners in on on what it is? Yeah. So basically, uh, what we've done is, you know, uh, all right, we've long debated right which which league is stronger, which is more depth, and and whatever. And so we floated the idea of, all right, what if we took um, eight writers, um, you know, representing the the big five European leagues. Uh, plus MLS, Liga MX, and um, and the Brazilian Serie A. And what if we had them pick a squad and simulate a tournament on on, on FIFA 20? Um, now, obviously, and we're talking simulation here. Like none of well, some of us are gamers. I'm certainly not. So it's not down to how skillful <laughs> you are. It's it's in simulation mode. And and obviously, is anybody who's you know has any inkling of the game? I mean, I personally, I, I stop playing video games with 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 madden 93 but um you know you know there's a bazillion options there's a lot of input you can have and so that's what we did about two groups of four um i'm 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 the bundesliga uh manager um and uh, we did have a restriction which is you could pick no more than four players from a single team in your match day squad uh to help balance things out and really reward, you know, people who've got a better understanding of their league, a better understanding of sort of the, the depth uh, that might be there. Um, I'm in a group with uh, the Brazilian league, uh, Julian Lawrence and the French league and, and Sid Lowe, and, uh, uh, who's, who's coaching La Liga. Um, I had my opening game against Brazil. I have to say the Bundesliga boys dominated, but we were held to a nil-nil draw, uh, which is disappointing. Um, so we'll see, we'll see how we get on. I got, well, I'm actually taking on, uh, league on next. Um, and I think I pretty much want to get the three points there because I don't want to leave it all to the last game against Lionel Messi and, and said, look, you are an Italian who lives in London and sounds like an American. And I'm wondering, how do you explain all that to people when they ask you about it? Well, I mean, I would hope people have moved on from, you know, the, the fact that sometimes people don't sound like stereotypical accents, but I mean, the simple fact of the matter is, is yeah, I'm Italian, and, uh, but I grew up, I grew up all over the world and in, in, in Germany, in the U S and Poland and Japan here in London. 
and I always attended uh, American schools um, or international schools. Um, and the first English I learned was was American English, and you know it's it's my second language, but I I've been speaking it all my life, and that is why I do not talk like this. And you know, I mean, I again I hope people kind of can move past that. You know, not everybody needs to have a, a heavy accent, but uh, evidently we're not there yet. You went to college at the University of Pennsylvania. You are a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan. Did consuming American sports and U.S. sports media have an impact on how you decided you wanted to cover soccer in Europe? Yeah, I mean, I think, obviously, I didn't, when I was in college, I didn't, you know, my dream wasn't to cover sports. I mean, I was a sports fan, but, you know, I wanted to be a serious magazine writer like, who wrote for the New Yorker, Vanity Fair, and, and had the wood-paneled office and stuff like that. Unfortunately, I don't, not, I don't really think those jobs exist anymore. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, one of the things I learned when I, I mean, I moved to, to, to London in, in late 1996, and, and it was sort of a perfect storm, right? It's immediately post-Bosman. It was the summer when the Premier League club started spending a lot of money Um I think it was really the start of the globalization of football. And you realize that there were many different, you know, there's certain archetypes to how we, to how we cover sports and, and really to how, um, to how media in general works. Um, and I tried to, you know, and I was obviously very familiar with how it was done in Italy. I knew how it was done in England because I finished high school in England and I'd just come from the States. So, you know, I tried to pick out things that I liked and, and things that, and things that I didn't like. Um, you know, I mean, one very obvious uh, thing that aspect that, that that I picked up on is that here in England, and I'm talking about. I mean, things have changed. You know, there, there's a lot of talented uh, writers here and people who write in different ways. But I think I would imagine you'd agree with this. You know, in England, a lot of the sports writing was about was about the narrative, right? How people felt, how motivated they were. Um, in in the U.S., a lot of times it was a lot more a lot more technical, a lot more X's and O's. You know, is the age old joke about you know people covering the Open and like you know the the U.S. sports writers would be asking questions like, hey, so why did you use the six iron there or whatever? And you know, and the English sports writers would be saying, so how did you feel when you saw that? And you know, and oh, which is fine. There's room for everything and. But I, I tried to bring some of that, uh, um, some some of the different viewpoints, some of the different ways that that, that we talk uh, about it. Um, and I think one of the big things was on the radio. Um, I had the opportunity to work for uh, Talksport, which is a national sports radio uh, network here. Um, and you know, people were like, "Oh, well, why is he getting so riled up? Why is he, um, you know, why is he questioning that this and that?" And you know, always oh, being gobby, you know, but, you know, I grew up with, where I just came from Philadelphia, where, you know, I listened to sports radio WIP, and people talk like that, and, and even more so, you know, in Italy, where we have these, these sort of endless uh, debate shows on, on, on TV and on radio, and, you know, that was something that didn't really exist so much here, and, and in some ways still isn't, so, I think as things globalize, the fact that, you know, in your phone, you can access media from all over the world, um, the way people talk about the sport has also changed. So you made a conscious decision at one point to be less of a newsbreaker and more of a well-informed pundit on things off the field in soccer and things on the field. How did that decision come about? I mean, you're right. Um, when I, I moved to the Times to write a column in 2003, um, and I took over. Um, I took over the column from the legendary Simon Cooper, um, a column on world football. And prior to that, you know, I'd I'd been freelancing for different publications, but you know, I, I was doing a lot of freelance work for for the Daily Mail, and there it was all about news and covering transfers and and, and whatnot. Um, I kind of felt that if you write a column, it has to be it has to be informed. So I would say the the amount of reporting that I do in terms of talking to people and, and informing them, informing myself, that really hasn't changed. Um, but 
they obviously felt, and I'm grateful to it, there was more of a market for, um, you know, for analysis and, and, and contextualizing things, um, which is what I was able to do um, at the times. And I'm, and I'm very grateful to them for, for the opportunity that, that they gave me. So you're not a former pro player. You're not a former pro coach. How is how has it been? Has it ever been difficult when you're debating on the field stuff and analysis with former players, whether it's ESPN or, or wherever? I think attitudes have, have changed. If you're talking on the field stuff, right? Like one of the things I will always ask and and defer to, because, you know, like most of us, I played soccer, but never obviously to, to any kind of any kind of semi pro level. Um is I'm often interested in in the technical aspects, and I'll I will ask, and I will and I will always listen, you know, in terms of why did why did he hit the ball that way, or you know why didn't he see the the, the runner on the other side? I mean, I think that is where you have to you have to really respect um, a player's ability. You know, why did he strike it that way? Um, why did he you know with goalkeepers why did he go with this hand why did he take a step that way especially goalkeepers because goalkeepers i one of the things i've realized is that goalkeepers are totally a breed apart whether it's you know i mean i was i worked with shocker hislop or whatever and you kind of realize that none of, no other ex-pro has any clue about goalkeeping and i know it infuriates some goalkeepers right but like you know um that's an on- ongoing thing so you know i think on the technical side I will always defer to them. I think on the tactical side, you know, what we've seen is there are a lot of people who have studied the game for a very long time, including some people, you know, without a high profile playing background who who became very good managers, um, whether it's, you know, right now you have Julian Nagelsmann. Before that, you had obviously Jose Mourinho, Sven-Jorn Eriksson, Arsene Wenger, you know, a whole list of these people. Um, and I think, you know, you can educate yourself and... You know, you can pick up on things. Um, I think also, you know, sometimes, first of all, ex-pros who've managed view the game differently always than um, than ex-pros who haven't. Um, you know, uh, on the FC show, I work with, with Steve Nichol, and, you know, the guy, all right, obviously he was part of a legendary Liverpool team, but the guy also managed professionally in MLS for a huge number of years and, you know, and reached a bunch of finals. And, you know, he had to think about these things. He had to, to hold these people to account. He was conditioned. I mean, Arsene Wenger told me one thing once that really struck me about, um, again, it sounds obvious, but it applies, I think, to coaching anywhere, right? When you're playing, your first input is going to be about yourself. You know, what is my job? How do I feel? How do I execute my job? How do others relate to me? Um, when you're coaching, your inputs come from you know 11 or 18 or 25 different young men, each one with with his own needs, with his own priorities, um, each one whose actions might influence somebody else's. I mean, that is a lot, and I think that's also why we see that some people who you know become ex-pros um, or, or finish playing and they try coaching and their heads explode and they're terrible at it and they just can't do it. Right? We see that all the time, because but I think. In some cases, it's because probably not super clever and only got the job because of the rep. But I think in many cases, it's simply because they can't navigate that transition from being individually focused as an athlete, even if they were great leaders on the pitch, um, to being group focused. Those are two very, very different qualities. And, and, and you become very aware of that. So you do a lot of different things for your job. What is a typical work week like for you when the soccer season is in full swing? God, so, um, so Saturday and Sundays, I will watch games. Um, I don't get to as many live games as I want. In fact, I'll, I'll generally, you know, living in London on a Saturday, I'll generally go watch Chelsea, Arsenal, or, or Fulham, depending, depending who's at home on a Saturday. Um, and then I will tape games. I, I try to watch, you know, and I've got multiple screens in my office right here, and I, I will I will try to watch you know four or five uh, Premier League games, um, two or three Serie A games, um, and you know 
basically every Bayern, Borussia Dortmund, Real Madrid, uh, Barcelona, and Atletico game every weekend. Um, and it is a ton of hours in front of the television. But I also think that it's kind of necessary not just to limit yourself to the highlights. You know, you can always follow up on that. But to get the whole context of it, to be able to explain something, you know, you kind of, ideally you'd be there, but what I cover is so broad that I can't be everywhere at once. So um, you got to put the time in watching the game. So I'll do that. And Sunday nights I'll usually um, have on, you know, I'll usually be on the FC show. Um, And then usually late Sunday night I'll start writing my... Monday Musings column, um, which is, you know, normally runs to well over 2,000 words, uh, where I will, you know, I'll try to dissect what I think are the big talking points, the big stories uh, from the weekend uh, across Europe. And then Monday morning, um, I'll take my podcast, the, the Gabba Jewel Show with, uh, with Julian Lawrence. Um, after that, I'll come back, finish my column, file my column, and then... Uh, and then usually I'll take a nap on Monday afternoon because, you know, uh, I, you can only go balls to the wall for so long. Um, and then and then during the week, obviously, you know, it'll vary with Champions League games. Uh, generally always write uh, a second column, sometimes a third column um, for the website. Uh, I'll usually do the show three or four times a week. Um, but I generally spend a lot of time on the phone and on and on WhatsApp just basically talking to people in the game. I mean, one of the advantages of, of being old and having covered a lot of these guys as players is you have relationships that, that you maintain. And some of these guys who you met a long time ago are, have now become pretty important people, either at football clubs or as agents or, or, or whatnot. Um, so, so that's generally how my, how my week unfolds. I mean, I remember being struck just observing you work on a few different occasions. We obviously shared a house together uh, at the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. But just I was struck by how many conversations you had with people that were were not for publication. They were basically off the record, but were very valuable clearly to you in in doing your job. Yeah, I mean, I know there's like, there's there are big debates on you know, having stuff on the record, um, anonymous quotes. Um, I think, you know, I'm fortunate that people trust me to write with some authority on issues. But the only way that my opinion can be, inf- my analysis can be informed is if is if I speak to people. If you're speaking to people on the record, they will not always be entirely truthful. Um you know, I, in my column on Monday, uh, I'll cite a recent example, and I did not speak to Jurgen Klopp on the record, but uh, or, or off the record, just to, just to be clear. But obviously, you know, there's been this long flirtation, this long love affair between Timo Werner and Jurgen Klopp, and I think it was obvious to everybody that Jurgen Klopp would have loved to sign him. And now, in the end, it looks as if because it's not it's not official yet, but it looks as if the deal's been hijacked by by Chelsea. Chelsea. Are, are paying his uh, uh, release clause and and he's going to go to Chelsea. And the explanation that Klopp gave on on Sky Germany was saying, well, you know, with the pandemic, um, you know, we're revenue's been hit, um, so we no longer wanted to, to wanted to do it, right? And unfortunately, you know, in social media, so people jump over it's like, oh, no, Liverpool have no money. No, it doesn't mean Liverpool have no money. It just means that it's about resource allocation, right? They're maybe not where they wanted to be, and they decided not to do it. And I certainly got the impression that Klopp felt, but, you know, he's an employee of the club, that he really wanted Werner, and he really still wanted Werner because, yes, he's got a wonderful attacking trio, but all those guys will be 28 years old by the time next season starts, and you know, you don't have to be a genius to understand that one of the worst things in sports is having, you know, three guys who are all roughly the same age profile all get older at once. Um, and so then I, I, people said, oh, yeah, well, Liverpool, yeah, they've been hit hard by the pandemic. So, you know, they couldn't afford him. And I said, could they not afford him? And I looked back and I looked at, you know, Liverpool's accounts are published online. You could see how much money Liverpool, I think, made close to, I don't have the figures in front of me, they're in the piece, but whatever, it's close to 150 million over in, in the last two, um, you know, 2017, 18, 2018, 19 accounts. Uh, since then, um, you know, in the last two transfer windows, they made a profit of another 30 million. They've obviously won the Champions League. 
uh, and they will win the Premier League again this year. So, yeah, they're taking a huge hit because sponsors and whatnot and uh, certainly, um, you know, and they're going to be behind closed doors. But, you know, even if they're closed behind closed doors for a whole year until next March, which I think is a bit of an extreme case. But even if they are, I looked at their match day revenue last season and it was around $84 million. So then I asked myself, well, this is effectively what you're losing out on is those, those $84 million, right? But you've made all this extra money elsewhere, right? And you're still a big club. And so I've come to the conclusion, and it's an entirely legitimate choice that the owners made. They said, all right, maybe we're losing money elsewhere. You know, we also run the Red Sox, of course. Maybe let's not cut it so fine with Liverpool because we don't know what's going to happen. Maybe there's uncertainty. Obviously, there's other factors. They've, they've renewed contracts, them, both fullbacks, I think. Let's be a little bit less aggressive than we would would otherwise. And it's fine. It's a totally legitimate choice. But I think also internally, from a football perspective, you know, you would debate. I think a guy like Werner would have would have come in pretty handy. And and I think it's important to be able to provide some context to it, right? It doesn't mean that Liverpool are suddenly broke. It does mean that maybe they've decided to be more conservative. And also their owners don't operate in a vacuum. They have other assets that may have appreciated or depreciated in value. And it's all part of a larger larger puzzle. And I think a lot of times people don't seem to understand that. And we in the media don't always do a great job of explaining this. Yeah, I, I think the word context to use is, is the right way. Like I, I've always appreciated how much effort you put into getting as much context as possible about something. Um, I want to ask you, I want to go back in time here, because I vaguely remember that when you were in college at Penn, which was right around the time MLS was starting as a league, didn't you do some sort of research paper into the start of MLS? Am, am I remembering this correctly? That was actually grad school at Columbia. So okay. Okay. I wrote my, um, my master's thesis at Columbia's grad school of journalism on on MLS, which was which was in its inaugural season, and the chances of MLS succeeding and and making an impact, and you know, I spoke to some of the big power brokers in U.S. soccer at the time. I spoke to Alan Rothenberg. I spoke to uh, Jim Trecker. Um, I spoke to to people like that. I did not speak to Chuck Blazer, in case you were in case you were wondering. Oh no, um, you know, or or Sunil, uh, whatever. I don't know what he was doing back then. He was probably already involved somehow. I assume. But um, but yeah, and, and if I have to say, I was there um, to watch the uh, Metro Stars score their very first uh, MLS goal, and it was actually an own goal um, <laughs> by um, by Nicola Caricola. In fact, first ever. Hence the curse of Caricola, as any Metro Stars Red Bulls fan would remember. Exactly. <laughs> so. Based on what you saw then and, you, you know, the paper you did and where you see MLS today, what stands out to you about the MLS of today compared to what you sort of foresaw back then? And look, I mean, I'm not, I only watch, you know, I, I catch maybe one MLS game a year in person. You know, I watch some things on television and obviously I read a lot. So I'm going to be less informed on this than, than, than you are. But I do talk to people and I am struck the first thing that strikes me is I look at certain clubs in MLS, certain some of the original clubs, right? And I remember I wrote in the thing in, in my piece, I said, like, you know, one of the keys is going to be, you know, I think it started out in a rather cheesy way about, you know, with the old NASL and 80,000 people at Giant Stadium watching the Cosmos. And, you know, those dads weren't able to necessarily translate their love of the game to their kids. And I said... You know, it's going to be critical for MLS for those dads who first come out and, and moms, of course, to to convert their sons and daughters to the game so that you build a fan base and a fan culture. And one thing that struck me about MLS is, again, I don't have the figures in front of me, but those second season attendance statistics, first season, obviously, enthusiasm, hype, whatever. But. At some of those clubs, I'm thinking of, of, of New England and, 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 and Chicago uh, in particular. Those are two that spring to mind. Maybe there's other examples. I mean, some clubs have folded, of course. But they're drawing comparable crowds in 1997 to what they were drawing 
you know, 20 years later. And I think to myself, man, that is a lost generation. Man, you haven't built on that. You know, people who were eight years old and went to see the Revs in 1997. I mean, I'm not picking on them. It's just one of the things where I noticed that follows follow this pattern. They should be 28 now, right? They should be the noisy people in the stands. They should start, you know, they should be starting having kids and taking them. And I'm like, why hasn't it multiplied? Why hasn't it grown? Um, and the flip side of that is, you know, you've got what, what we've seen in, in, in Atlanta, what we've seen, you know, before that in, in, in Portland and in Seattle. Um, again, I don't want to name names. I feel like I'm leaving somebody out, but I'm sure there's a ton of great examples where on the other hand, you've had tremendous enthusiasm um, and the attendances are there. And, and, and I think that in other ways, it's obviously, it certainly has worked. Um, but I think it also depends on what kind of benchmark you use. Um, one thing that, that strikes me, and like other American sports, it's all about parity, right? The league is designed from to generate parity because that generates excitement, and that works great for the NFL. On the flip side, um, you don't have super clubs, or you might have a super club for a while when a big when a big superstar is there, and then two years later it goes, and then they're bad again, and whatever. Not having super clubs means it's hard to have a national conversation. I certainly get the impression, and again, look, you know more about this, you tell me, but you don't have teams where, you know, you know that if you put these two teams on TV, you're going to get a huge national audience. So it feels as if these teams are pop, might be popular on a regional basis, but not on a national scale. And... I don't know how you solve that problem because obviously, you know, you, you don't necessarily want to adopt the European soccer model where now it's completely lopsided. Um, but equally, you know, how do you get how do you get casual fans to watch a game between two big successful MLS clubs and be part of the national conversation rather than just following their own team? Um, I think that that's one of the challenges for the league going forward. I mean, yeah, is that, is that a fair assessment? I mean, again, you, I, mean, I should be asking you these questions. I don't know why you're asking <laughs> no, me. No, no, no. I, I, I'm curious to hear your take. But I, I would say MLS's biggest issue is not with its newer expansion teams. It's the original teams from 96 or, in Chicago's case, uh, 98. Um, you know, just those original teams don't – the atmosphere doesn't always feel major league when you go to Columbus or Dallas or Denver – um, and the only MLS original team that has totally turned around is still Kansas city. And they need to have more examples of Kansas city. Like MLS's expansion choices have for the most part been really smart, you know, where they've gone and how that's, uh, been pulled off. But, um, no, it's, it's, it's good to hear your, your take on that though. And I'm always interested in, you know, how people, including you sort of on the outside, see where MLS is now and where it might be going. I'm also struck by the conversation because, you know, there's a lot of vocal people in and around U.S. soccer. I know there's a lot of debate. I've also had people tell me, well, those original U.S. owners, some of the ones, they don't necessarily care. They don't have any incentive to go and grow their team because, you know, they get the expansion fees, those the 10 million bucks that they put up with originally. You know, they got that back a zillion fold. So they're happy for the new franchises for, for Atlanta and, and whatever else to, to go and do all the legwork and they can just sit there and code. Is that, is that accurate? Is that fair? Or is that just jealous people bitching? No, I mean like there's no threat of relegation. And so Stan Kroenke doesn't really invest in the Colorado Rapids. Um, and he's not the only one I did find it. I did a column a couple years ago when uh, Kroenke's NFL team and Bob Kraft's, NFL team met each other in the Super Bowl, just sort of pointing out that their MLS teams are some of the least ambitious teams in the league, or have been traditionally. Maybe the Revs are getting a little bit better about that. And actually, Colorado's off to a pretty good start in in the season so far. But, um, you know, uh, one thing I've always done is my annual MLS ambition rankings, where I rank top to bottom. Um, who are the most ambitious, you know, typically ownership groups in the league and the least. And the newer ones 
the, the newer teams and owners tend to be the ones that are the most ambitious, whether it's Atlanta or LAFC or Seattle. And we're starting to see a separation of a bit of uh, big club, smaller club um, in, in MLS. That's interesting. I, I, I mean, I assume that once you've been there for so long, there's no real incentive for these people. Maybe there's not much incentive to spend more, but then there's no real incentive for them to sell either because the league is the league is so stable, and you know they their 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 valuation is probably going to be so high that you know nobody's going to come along and and, and pay five hundred million to buy to buy the reps. But if they did, maybe they'd sell. I don't know. I mean, Chicago got sold um, for a fair amount of money, like market value, at least based on what the expansion fees are uh, last year. So I'm curious to see if that happens more and more often, especially once they stop expanding, because they're going to get to their 26 teams this year. They'll be at 30 in two years. Um, what do they expand to when they, uh, when they merge with League MX? I mean, that is, <laughs> that is being talked about, you know, with, uh, and we'll see, like, I find it interesting that Don Garber, the MLS commissioner is, pretty openly talked about a desire to potentially do that someday. And we'll see if FIFA lets them. I mean, you're a guy who you have a, a good relationship with the FIFA president, Johnny Infantino and other soccer politicians in Europe. Do you have an idea about what Infantino really thinks about the fact that there's no promotion and relegation in MLS and that if FIFA wanted to, they could step in on that? Does it, does he have any interest in that? How does he really feel? Well, look, I can't, I obviously can't speak for for Infantino. I think if you look at the rules, they're pretty clear. Um, you know, there, there has to be a pathway. And there's many different ways to have a pathway, and that's why they had a lawsuit. Um, I think it's pretty clear also that he's not going to get involved. And I think a big part of the reason why he's not going to get involved is there's a World Cup and the U.S., Mexico, and Canada in 2026. And, you know, you have the age-old, um, you know, the age-old dream of converting the U.S. or a majority of the U.S. Uh, to soccer, so to speak, you know, that remains. And that is seen as, that is seen as critical. So if you were cynical, you might conclude that, you know, you would say, well, this isn't really, I mean, this is just my reading of it, but, if you've got these people in the U.S., you know, Don Garber and, you know, Liga MX now, they effectively, you know, they, 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 they stopped relegation. They had, um, they, they moved one of the teams, I think, was it, was it, Mona, uh, Mora, uh, was it Monaca? Morelia to, Morelia to uh, Mazatlan. So don't they play baseball in Mazatlan? Isn't that the biggest sport there? <laughs> no, I mean, don't ask me about my Mexican baseball knowledge. <laughs> um, but... If you have the people running club football in those countries who are hell bent on arguing that this is this is what this is the only way that works to make this this sport viable, um, you know, you ask yourself: the World Cup is bigger than that. The World Cup, you don't necessarily want to go and pick a battle with them now. You know, there might have been a different time. Maybe you'd made it. Maybe you could have made it a condition. For the World Cup, for example, um, I, I don't know. I I'm not. I mean, for me personally, I don't necessarily buy this argument that things have to be set up that way because that is how you know the NFL and the NBA are set up. Um, I think. I, I mean, I don't necessarily go the other fully the other hog and say, well, you know, promotion, the lack of promotion relegation is why the U.S. national team is, is, has underachieved. Um, but, you know, when I look at it, I, it just seems that the situation for, for some of the longtime owners is, is pretty cushy. Um, I'm always, I'm always surprised how in, you know, there's also a lot less disclosure about how weirdly there's more disclosure about individual teams' revenues and profits and losses in European football, which in many ways the governance is, you, know, you could argue, historically has been worse than the U.S. 
than there is in American sports, right? We don't really know how much the Dallas Cowboys made, right? You know, always people always talk about, oh, but you know, the Forbes says the franchise is worth five or six billion. I'm sure it is, but we don't we don't know, right? But you look at the NFL, it's set up in a way where everybody makes money, right? You've got salary cap, which is forty eight percent of uh, projected revenues. You know what the revenues are because you sell out every game and you um and you've sold your TV money and you've got all these metrics nerds who can tell you exactly how much, you know, uh, how many shirts you're going to sell and whatever. And you know what it is. And, you know, unless you're an idiot and really screw things up, you're not going to lose money. And I think that's kind of how MLS wants to be. It may be how MLS already is. I don't know if the league's, I mean, I think, I mean, you tell me, what, what does he say? The league is, is it, are they still saying the league isn't making money yet? Um, yes, that's what they're saying. <laughs> if I have a league of 26 teams and, you know, 10 of them or, or six of them are, or however many are startups who've invested a ton of money, if, they, you know, if Atlanta's paying for their, you know, uh, whether they pay rent on the stadium to the guy who also owns the stadium and the team or whatever the hell, you know, it's understandable that the new teams wouldn't be making money. So rather than having something across the board, you'd want to know, well, what are the individual teams doing? Because from where I sit, you know, you've got a national TV contract, you've got expenses and stuff, and you try to figure out. And the reality is we don't know. And I think from an owner's perspective, hey, it suits you to keep it that way, right? Because in Europe and in South America, if you had a team that was making enormous amounts of money and not doing great, you would have fans beating a, beating a path to the owner's door saying, you need to invest, you need to invest in the team. You can't just be taking money out of the team, right? You know, go tell the Glazers about that, right? <laughs> I can understand why. If I were an MLS owner, I wouldn't want that environment. I wouldn't want that scrutiny. So promotion relegation would add, obviously, a level of uncertainty to that. Is it necessary for the for the sport to survive? I don't know. I mean, I would have thought that if you believed promotion and relegation would make um, would make the whole system more solid um, and help the U.S. national team down the road. Because let me ask you this. I mean, I. I I've spoken to, to former U.S. players and stuff, right? I, correct me if I'm wrong. Apart from Clint Dempsey, most of them are all from similar parts of the country where they had the opportunity to play against players of similar standard, right? You don't have U.S. national team players from Idaho who were you know, the best player in the state by a mile from the moment they were born. You know... Would promotion relegation change that? Would it incentivize teams if there was a, a third division team in, in Idaho that somebody played on and they said, well, maybe we could move him on if we help develop him? Or, or, you know, you get into a whole bunch of other dynamics that right now don't exist in the U.S. Is there a way to introduce a system like that while having, you know, huge safeguards for teams that get promoted in terms of financial solidity and stability and whatever and saying, you know, if you don't if you don't have the stadium, if you don't have this much in the bank, if you don't have this much you can't get promoted. You know, is there a way to do that and maybe compensate teams that are relegated? Um if they've paid the expansion fee, then maybe you get some of it back over time. Is there a way to do this or is this just permanently off the table? And if it is off the table, what are the long-term impact, you know, what are the long-term consequences for U.S. soccer? I just kind of feel that, like, you know, you've got strong views on both sides. And I think until somebody comes with figures and does at least, like, a serious report, a serious analysis, ideally somebody independent, right? Because we've had analyses from from both MLS and then from Camiso and Silva and Agamemnon. I appreciate it. Those guys, you know, hey, if I pay some dude to, to do my analysis, you know, I'm not casting any doubt. But obviously, if it is somebody entirely independent, then maybe we could actually evaluate the situation. Right. Until that happens, you're still going to have this back and forth. I genuinely don't know what the solution is, but I'd be surprised if for what is ultimately a regional issue in freaking CONCACAF, with all due respect, if FIFA are going to go and pick a fight over it when you've got the 2026 World Cup coming up. Right, right. We're wrapping up here with Gabriel Marcotti. Um, you and me, we have a group that includes not just us, but Guillaume Balagay and Raphael Honigstein, and we get together for dinner at least once, sometimes more than that, at every World Cup. And 
you and me and Guillaume, we stayed at the same house together at the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. You introduced me to those guys at Euro 2004 in Portugal. But I never actually asked you, how did you meet Guillaume and Rafi in the first place? So I met Guillaume Balaguer. I worked with him at, at Talksport. Um, we had a show dedicated to, to European football um, on Monday nights. And um, a couple of years after, Raf joined the show. So we would have those debates in the show, which would then become the debates that we would have when we were living together at yeah, it's every Euro and World Cup since 2004. Um, so that was basically, you know, we were all in similar situations. We're all foreigners who've, who've made our homes here in uh, in the United Kingdom. Um, we come from different cultures. We bring those cultures with us. We work in football. And I think we've we all benefited tremendously from, from the fact that, you know, I think one of the strengths of the Premier League is that it is the most globalized and most diverse league out there um I, w- I was actually i wrote a column on this last year and you know i don't I'm, I'm not saying this in a political sense at all right but when people talk about the strengths of or the benefits of diversity right we agree the premier league is the most commercially successful football league in the world possibly most commercially successful successful sports league in the world by a country mile right and then i looked at the different clubs and you know you have chelsea who is owned by a russian israeli guy um whose chairman is an american guy who's i don't know what her title is but the woman who runs the club day to day effectively uh she's canadian of russian descent uh, and and is a woman and there aren't many women executives in sport as you know their director of football is czech both in name and in nationality. Um, the director of football before him was was Nigerian. Uh, again, not many uh, executives of, of, of color um, uh, out there in, in major major institutions. Um, you know, you look at you look at Liverpool, where you've got uh, a mix of of, of of English people, of of, of Americans. You look at um, you look at Arsenal up the road, where you know you have. An American owner, you had you had a South African chief executive who moved on and left behind sort of a, a, a shared power structure, which involves uh, a Catalan uh, guy in charge of a football and, uh, and and a British guy of Asian descent in charge of the of the commercial side, and they have a Brazilian director of football um, at Spurs. The number two uh, in person in charge is is, is a woman. Um, at, at Manchester City, uh, you know, you've got uh, a, a Catalan chief executive, you have a Basque director of football, but then commercial director, I think, is French. The guy before him was uh, was American. I mean, nobody really cares. And, and th- those are people in key positions. Right? That's before you get into the players, who, of course, are from all over the world, uh, before you get into the managers, who, of course, are from all over the world, and, of course, as are the owners. Now, if diversity didn't make you better, if, to have the, if having the ability to choose the best people, choose who you think are the best people, regardless of background, race, or gender, if that wasn't important, these people wouldn't be doing it, right? Nobody's waving a stick at them and saying, you have to do this, right? No, they're choosing to do it. And the outcome is that you've got one of the most successful, um, or, or the most successful global and the most global sports league out there so i mean i think that should give people the stuff to ponder and, and they are unlike anywhere else in europe i should stress this not in italy not in germany not in spain do you have you know this openness to not just football wise but to executives from around the world this openness of ideas and it's something that you know i i'm a big believer in i i, I kind of think the game is so global that if you can bring in conflicting ideas but and and have a conversation about it and then reach an an optimum strategy to plan um especially in a global environment you're going to emerge that much stronger uh at at, at the other side and you know um i I give the premier league a lot of stick believe me uh because they do a lot of silly things i think but that is one of their absolute strengths and you know were it not for the growth of the premier league i 
I wouldn't have a job. I certainly wouldn't have this job. It is interesting because when I first, I think I came to visit you on a weekend in the fall of 1998, and we went to a Chelsea game. I think it was Chelsea Wimbledon. Um, and uh, in those days, even in 98, Chelsea was viewed as, oh, they're the Cosmopolitan Club. And, and the, the whole globalization thing really hadn't hit the Premier League yet. It was still in the process of, of happening. So that, that it's, it's interesting to see. Like, that didn't just, it hasn't always been the case. I mean, that's, that's a development of the last 20, 20 years or so. Yeah, uh, there's no question about it. And they got a lot of stick for obviously having all those foreign players. You know, now nobody pays attention to it. Um, you know, I think it's a it's a question of, of the Overton window of, of, of what's 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 been normalized. Um, and I think and it speaks to to the environment here. I mean, I think it's been possible here also because, you know, there's a big pro business environment. But, you know, and look, the big six clubs in, in England, right? Five of the six have foreign ownership. The one that doesn't Tottenham. They say they don't in practice because the guy who owns them, Joe Lewis, is English. In practice, the guy is a tax exile who lives in the Bahamas. So whether you still want to consider him or not, I don't know. Um, you know, and as you go further down, you know, to, to you're, you're going to see you see more and more examples of this. Um, there is a downside to it. You know, there, there's a fact that I mean, something Johnny Fantino said, and I, I agree with him is. We've got super rich people from all over the world who are investing their money in European football. I'd love it if there was the environment for these people to invest their money in, in their own leagues, in, on their doorstep, wherever they're from. And obviously some of them have done it. But, you know, the Glazers aren't involved in MLS. The, you know, Fenway Sports Group isn't involved in, in MLS. Um, and, you know, and those are two very successful owners of major, major brands. And part of me might ask why. You know, why aren't they? They obviously understand soccer. They've built up a know-how, right? Why haven't they done it? And does it have something to do with the with the climate locally? Are there, are, are, are there inherent barriers to it where you would say, you know, I'd rather go and spend my money halfway around the, halfway around the world? Um, I mean, I, I'm going to go on a limb and suggest that the Glazers probably really don't care. You know, um, Fenway maybe don't think that there's the business conditions, or maybe they would only want to invest in Boston. And you know, there's already another rich uh, owner there who owns the owns a, a team there. I, I I don't know, but um, I know people can spend their money wherever they want. But I think these are questions that people should ask, right? These all these Chinese owners, owners from from the Gulf, you know. In some cases, you understand it, right? The guy in Abu Dhabi, who does own a club in, in, in the Emirates, by the way, but like, you know, Abu Dhabi's teeny tiny. You're not going to build a major league that way. But, you know, others, there are situations where you can grow. And I don't know, it's, it's something that um, is worth thinking about more broadly because, you know, when you talk about club soccer, in the end, you always have the, the specter of the closed world Super League, you know, hovering somewhere in the background. And people just wanting to buy into that, and I think that would be, I think that would be a shame for for the game because it's it's, it's much much bigger than that. Last question for you. I've kept you on longer than I told you I would. Uh, what sort of stuff do you want to do in the future, work wise? You do so many different things well, whether it's writing or TV or podcasts, uh, books. Like, what sort of stuff do you want to do? So media wise, I mean, I'm I'm very privileging and grateful to ESPN for, for the oppor opportunities that um, that they've given me. Um, I love doing the podcast. I love doing the show. I, I enjoy the columns um, I write. Um, I fear I've had the opportunity to write books. I, I have not seen my name in print in the New Yorker or, or Vanity Fair, so that's one of those childhood dreams that may never come to pass. Um, I don't know. I think at some point in the future... Um, I, I'd be intrigued by the idea of, of sort of the institutions that run the game and is there a way 
to to make the game better? Is there a way to to make it accessible to all? Um, is there a way to to run it in a cleaner way? You know, because we in the media, we you know, we can only narrate what happens, but and, and and that's a big part of what we do. But you know, when you spend a little time, you realize there's a lot of things that are very wrong with the way the game is run. There's a lot of there's a lot of illegality. There's a lot of unfairness, and you know we can ask our institutions to to go and clean it up, UEFA or FIFA or Concacaf or whatever, Comable. Um, and some of the, some people there try, some perhaps a little bit less so because they don't mind the status quo. But I do wonder, you know, is there a way? Can we build? Can we build something better? You know. Um, and I have no idea how you would begin doing it. I mean, my first instinct would be like, let's just assemble like 10 super smart people in a room and, and, and see what they can do. Um, you know, one story that I, I wrote about for, for ESPN, and who knows if it'll come to, to fruition, but FIFA are sitting on around $2.6 billion in, uh, in, in cash reserves. Some of that, I think around $500 million, they've already earmarked um, as additional funds for women's football. But, but still, $2 billion, you know, if you take that away, $2 billion is an enormous amount of money. And at a time when, obviously, people have been hit hard by the pandemic, a lot of clubs, a lot of federations, you know, they've said they're, 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 they've said they're looking at ways to make some of these funds available, maybe in the form of, of, of grants or loans or low-interest loans or, or maybe using, you know, FIFA have an insane credit rating because they're sitting on a huge pot of gold. Maybe they could co-sign loans to, to help people along, help them out. And I thought to myself, you know, that's, that's great because in most of, you know, most of the world isn't the Premier League and the Bundesliga and City. Yeah, most of the world is grassroots football. Most of the world is semi-pro leagues. Um, and it wouldn't take a lot of money keep things afloat to keep things ticking over to make sure that people still have opportunities to play the game so that part is that part is great but in my opinion if they do it um they should do it the way the imf does it or the world bank does it when they go and they give people money and say yeah we'll keep you afloat but you have to implement these five changes to your rules and you have to have this level of oversight um you know whether it means banning people from owning multiple clubs in the same football pyramid, for example, whether it means more transparency in ownership structures. You know, why are there all these clubs that are owned by offshore entities, for example? Um, why is it that clubs will publish, it's just a stupid, one of the stupidest things, right? Clubs said, oh no, we're not going to be transparent. We're going to publish uh, how many, uh, how much money we pay in commissions to agents, right? Okay, but you pay those commissions when an agent switches team, when a player switches teams, right? If you want that number to be smaller, you just pay a little more in transfer fee or a little less and have the team on the other side pay the agent and we'll never know. Why can't you itemize how much you paid every agent for every deal? So that, you know, what I would like to get to with football ultimately is what I call crowdsourced oversight, right? Where fans have all the information, everything from... Um, the wages people get paid to the financial dealings. And you know what? At any level, there'll be some nerd of a fan sitting in his basement who can read a spreadsheet and can, and can write on his little blog and say, aha, guess what? We spent, you know, $10,000 on ball bearings, which we didn't need. You know, why? And then it's the fans themselves who go and ask for answers, you know, rather than some big star chamber of an oversight of a national oversight committee or whatever. I think that's what we need because, you know, they're look. I mean, you don't need to tell me. Um, I, I often joke. I have a friend who works for Concacaf, and I say, "Whoa, you know, it's funny. The last three presidents are all either in prison or have been indicted." You know, um, <laughs> whoa, how about that? You know, I mean, and, and it's the same. I believe it's the same at Comable, incidentally. I, I, I'm interested in this idea. How can we make this thing better? You know, writ large. How can we not just continue like lemmings towards a world where, you know, there's only going to be 10 or 12 clubs that, that matter? You know, I'm, and I'm not saying this is some crazy lefty. I want football to continue being a business and I want people to make money off it. And I want to entrepreneurs to see it as an investable business. But I also want transparency. 
because it's not a business like any other. It is a business where you're you're dealing with people's emotions and people's loyalties, and that's important. You have a captive audience. That's what you're buying into. Um, so, so yeah. So that's a that's a long answer to uh, longer answer than you expected, no doubt. But I don't know. Let's say somebody should give me a job. I'm happy what I'm doing now. But down the road, if there was a way to to help facilitate something like that, um, you know, reform that actually matters, uh, I'd be all for that. Gabriel Marcotti is a senior writer for ESPN, a correspondent for Corriere dello Sport. He worked with Gianluca Vialli on his new book, Goals, Inspirational Stories to Help Tackle Life's Challenges. Gab, thank you for being a good friend. Thank you for the amazing work you do. Thanks for coming on the show. No, it's a pleasure's all mine. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Gabriel Marcotti as well as producer Chris Whittingham. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of the Total Soccer Show for everything they've done to help get this show off the ground. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.